You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, a conversation between audience and artists intended to demystify the classical music and opera art form. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. It's available via Spotify and Audioboom. That way, you'll hear about the latest podcasts as they become available. Be sure to follow Thoroughly Good on Twitter or on Facebook, and you'll find the blog at thoroughlygood.me. And there's one more thing to mention. This podcast relies on the generosity of others to keep it going. If you're someone who has supported the podcast already, be assured that you will receive, eventually, a Thoroughly Good badge as a measure of my thanks. If you're someone who likes the idea of receiving a badge, or indeed joining the throng of discerning individuals who have supported the podcast already, please head over to the Thoroughly Good blog at thoroughlygood.me, where you'll find a donate button, Anything you can spare would be very much appreciated. Podcast 46 features cellist Matthew Barley, whose recording of John Taverner's The Protecting Veil was released on the Signum label in June 2019. The podcast was recorded in Holland Park a few days after I'd learned of the death of a former colleague of mine, Paul Condon. We weren't close friends especially, more associates really. He was a remarkably talented individual, phenomenally warm, uh, and a man whose positivity and enthusiasm for mostly everything was infectious. I listened to Matthew's recording of The Protecting Veil shortly before the podcast recording, and now, as a result, it's inextricably linked with recollections of Paul at the BBC and the impact the news of his untimely death had on me, and, I think, on a great many others who knew him far better than I did. It seems fitting, therefore, to dedicate this podcast to the memory of a fantastic content producer who, along with a slew of others in 2005, inspired me, encouraged me, to press on creating. Matthew covers many topics in this 45-minute exchange, including how a skiing accident not only helped re-evaluate his career, but how it helped diagnose Ehlers-Denlos Syndrome, a type of hypermobility which in turn developed Matthew's playing in an <laughs> unexpected way. A bulletproof coffee, I think, is an invention of, of Americans who wanted to lose weight. That's my suspicion. So Bulletproof Coffee is um, a really strong black coffee made with special... This is so Ponzi. Made with special coffee beans that grow above a certain altitude so that they don't have the presence of something called mycotoxins, which is a bad chemical component of coffee. So it's very clean coffee, and you make your strong black coffee, and then you melt a bit of ghee, as in the Indian clarified butter. 
tablespoon or something. Then you add some MCT oil, which is a derivative of coconut oil, all the goodness but without the coconut taste. So it's a, basically an odorless, colorless oil. Right. You put all three of them in the blender, you blend the fuck out of it <laughs> till it's really frothy. And that mixture does two things. One, it suppresses your appetite. Right. And two, it, it spreads the caffeine dose over a very long period of time. Some, and it does all, there's articles galore online about it, and it's really tasty. Is it? Um, so, uh, it sounds like chemistry. It's chemistry, yeah. Right. I actually drink it very seldom, but I had some friends who came to stay this morning who love it. So I thought, okay. And we, we were also discussing last night how in some schools of thought it's better to have a really big brunch and a good early dinner than to have three meals a day. So we thought, okay, let's try that tomorrow right. then. And does so we that had, work? Well, it's working so far. Right. <laughs> I mean, oh, you've not done it before? I, I haven't done it, right. except for one holiday where me and my wife did that every day, and we loved it, actually. Right. Get up in the morning, have a swim, poodle around, have a really big brunch about 11 or 12, and then a nice big early dinner at 6 ish. In comparison really to many good, of actually. the other contributors who've appeared on this podcast, none of them have gone into quite so much detail about, there you go. about coffee. Be, coffee. be warned, it is could it, be a long interview. So, <laughs> is it coffee that you make yourself then? Well, I mean, how long does that process take? And why would you put butter in it? I mean, that's essentially. Apparently, apparently that. Um, protein, that dairy protein does something in, the, and I did read an article, but I didn't understand a word an of it and I can't remember a word. <laughs> an really long article on bulletproof right. coffee. Right. So there you go. Um, I'm, I'm, it sounds I'm, like drugs. That's like, it sounds like speed. That's what it sounds <laughs> yes. like, really. If it's Probably something along those lines. If it's an appetite yeah. suppressant, then it sounds yeah. a little bit like speed. I know, exactly. um, but it's uh, very tasty. And and tell frothy. me why we're tell me why we're meeting today. I mean, I know why we're meeting, but I need you to start this off, really. We're meeting today so that I can uh, talk to you about the Protecting Veil, which is my favourite cello concerto, and I also would go out on a limb and say it's the best one that's been written in half a century. Wow, you covered a couple of questions before we even <laughs> asked you. <laughs> right. Which is interesting. Um, I hadn't realised that it was a cello concerto. Okay, yeah. I so, think it has so to be classed. So Taverner did class it as a, as a concerto? Or is that you do? I don't actually personally know that, but I think the definition... How should we define a concerto? It's a, it's a piece of music for a solo instrument and orchestra. Okay. okay. I think. Fine. Okay. Uh, I have some history with this work. Which is, I was a page turner for Raphael Valfish when he, yeah, you when, yeah, I amazing. Was, uh, in 1995, and I turned the page too early, and he jammed his heel in my front foot. And when I saw him on the train at Gatwick about 20 years later, I went up to him and said, I know who you are. And he went, Yes, I know who you are. And <laughs> Wonderful. So he hadn't forgotten. Uh, I remember it being uh, an enormously. Um, absorbing work mm-hmm. uh, and incredibly because I was sat where I was it was incredibly <laughs> textural as well and, uh-huh. and just like a um, it was just like a blanket of sound all around me yeah yeah is that what you experienced when you played um, there are many many places where that blanket of sound is quite intoxicating actually it's quite extraordinary and there are so many things about the concerto, if we can call it that, which I think we can, um, that are unique. Um, first of all, it's written in song form. Um, a traditional concerto would be three movements, some of them four, some of them one long movement. But this is actually in a song form. Uh, there, are, there are easily discernible um, verses and choruses throughout, if you know where to listen for them. 
Uh, it's also completely unique in that uh, it lasts 46 minutes and the cello plays from the first note to the last without stopping. So the level of physical and mental stamina and emotional stamina really to get through that required from the cellist is huge. It's a real workout in many, many ways. <coughs> I had forgotten, even though I knew what the title was, I had forgotten about the, uh, the spiritual element to it. Can, before I ask you the thing I want to ask you, can you just provide some explanation about the, the impetus behind it? Sure. Well, Taverner converted to Christian Orthodoxy in the 70s, I think, the late 70s. Um, he had a house in Greece. He was very involved with the Orthodox Church in lots of ways. And a huge number of his works were written as tributes to Mary, Mary the Mother of God. And this one is called the Protecting Veil, which is short for the Protecting Veil of the Mother of God. And it's one of the feast days in the Orthodox Christian Church. Um, and the idea is that the cello represents, as John said, an icon in sound. Um, and the string orchestra is an extension of that icon in sound, creating what he called an unending song as a tribute to Mary, the Mother of God. I listened to it again this morning, and uh, uh, I don't mention this because it's your recording, although obviously it helps, but um, I found it had quite a profound effect on me, because uh, this may not be entirely unrelated. Uh, a former colleague of mine I learned last week had died, uh, and he's a couple of years older than me, and I found that even though we were not friends, we, we certainly didn't spend any time together, uh, I found that had quite an unexpected impact on me wow. uh, and when I listened to the projecting bell this morning I found I could almost I almost had to stop listening to it wow. as in there was quite I found it incredibly dark mm. and uh, almost terrifying in mm. places in a way that I perhaps haven't heard it before um, the reason I explain that is because I it struck me that it was evoking, it, it was helping me access feelings that mm. I was obviously holding at, the, at that yeah. moment in time. Yeah. And I wonder how that differs from other concertos. Because if I listen yes. to the Elgar, I will yeah. feel, for example, I will, I will feel a, uh, I will have an emotional response to the Elgar or to the Vorjak. Yeah. Uh, but it's different from from this one yeah. and I'm wondering what is going on right uh, and I want you to tell me that ah, okay <laughs> so you look like you understand what I'm saying yes I do um, <laughs> I mean first of all I'm I'm touched to hear that but I'm also really glad because that's what the piece should be doing right. I think that's what the piece is designed for that's um, without a doubt that's my intention as an interpreter to, to evoke that kind of response in people and it's a piece that you can do that with and the piece is, there, there are two interesting things about the piece. One is, um, exactly as you said it, that it, it, it evokes in the listener a response of, of feeling that they're, they're enveloped in a blanket of sound. Um, people come up with all sorts of different words to describe it, but it's often along those lines. And it's, it's very flowy, it's very enveloping, and that's definitely the impression it gives. On the other hand, its construction is incredibly tight compositionally, e even to the point of, of geometry. There are many sections that are symmetrical, for instance. Uh, the, the section that's the cello on its own, in the middle of it, the, the Mary at the foot of the cross, 
um, is about two and a half minutes of composed music which then simply reverses itself and every note occurs backwards. Very, very difficult to write music that works forwards and backwards. And there are many, many compositional devices like that that make it a very geometrical composition. So, which puts it in line of some sort of sacred Islamic geometry, which, which is both very ordered and evokes a, a huge emotional response. So I think that's one of the things that's going on. Um, I think the other thing that's going on is that um, the feast days upon which the piece is based, so we've already mentioned the, the Feast of the Protecting Veil, there's also the Ascension, the Incarnation, the Lament of Mary at the foot of the cross, all these feast days are very particular to the Christian church and especially the Orthodox church but they are not exclusive emotionally so let's take uh, the resurrection um, the resurrection is obviously about the resurrection of Jesus Christ after the crucifixion but it's just a piece of music of total total joy for me it's it's the joy of being alive the, the you know when we walk out of this pub we see this this lovely sunny day this blue sky and, and there is definitely this feeling oh it's good to be alive how wonderful to be a human being on this planet in this moment that's what that music is about for me and there's something extraordinary about the way John in each of those sections um, accesses a very universal emotion And the other thing I might say, because I'm on a roll, um, is um, the, the Lament of Mary at the Foot of the Cross is one of my favourite sections, and it really is dark. Um, and if we just think about a Christian feast day, I'm, I'm not a Christian myself, but I'm very, very sympathetic to uh, the, the spiritual content of the piece. But I access it through thinking, OK, Mary at the foot of the cross is a woman kneeling before a very large piece of wood upon which her son is nailed and dying. You, know, you don't need any religion to relate to that. It's astonishing. Just the, the, the imagery on every level of human experience is absolutely astonishing. And the music there is a solo cello, and it's made up of a very small number of notes which go around in different ways, folding back on themselves, exploring their relationships with quarter tones and strange phrase lengths. And it feels like the evocation of a woman who's going mad with grief like a grief is simply too much to bear which it would be and and i know the bit that i don't know and i couldn't tell you about it all is how john manages to do that with notes but i suppose that's the mystery of genius because he he does it of that we can be certain how with so few notes for me that's on a it, it, it reminds me of bach bach was another one who could in invoke an enormous amount of emotional response in a listener with very few notes, that kind of simplicity.
spoken question. You're right. Of this, aren't you? yeah, just, yeah, it's like you've been interviewed before. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, but that has answered my question. That right. has helped explain why I felt as though it was almost highlighting yeah. some stuff that was going on at the time. Yeah. Uh, even though, like you, I don't have, I don't come to it from a from a religious point right. of view. Right. Um, uh, I think it is utterly ravishing work. And I think that's that's the point of art, I mean, or the point of music. And I I've thought about this a huge amount over the years. Like, what what is music for? What is this extraordinary phenomenon that spans every culture, every corner of the earth, every era of history that we're aware of? There's music there, right at the core of that culture. And and I've come to the conclusion that music is um, it's a healing force employed by human beings um, slightly tricky words slightly new agey connotations and I don't use it in that sense at all but I use it in the sense of um, the root of the word to heal comes from a Norse word meaning to make whole and I think that you know when we're when we're experiencing a different a difficult emotion um, that music has a way of mirroring that and accessing that emotion and when you connect with the music and that you feel better for having felt that emotion more fully through the music and I think that's the way that music heals. How did you arrive at that conclusion? I arrived at that conclusion um, over quite a long period of time but I, I had a, a period of time when I wasn't playing the cello because of a skiing accident and I thought I might never play again and it was quite an introspective time of my life about 12 years ago uh, and one of the things I decided to do is to give a talk because I couldn't play um, called What's Music For? Um, and I found myself at a meeting of shamans and musicians and dancers in South America that a friend of mine, a filmmaker, had invited me to and I was like, okay, I'm not working, I'll go along in Colombia and we met the Kogi Indians and the Kogi Indians are a, a tribe of Indians who never had any contact with the Spanish when they came over because they basically ran up a very tall mountain for 500 years. Um, nifty. Nifty. Um, <laughs> quite agile. Quite <laughs> agile. And, uh, and, and that was extraordinary to hear musicians play who have an unbroken line through generation to generation for hundreds, probably thousands of years with no, no influence from Europeans right. at all. And I had some amazing conversations with them through two-way interpreters, English to Spanish to Kogi, back to me, asking them questions like, you know, where did you learn this piece? And they would say, from my father. Where did he learn it from? From his father. Uh, and say, so, okay, let, let's just shorten this. Where did it come from? It was taught to our ancestors by Mother Earth at the beginning of time. Wow. Exactly. Wow. wow. Yes, yeah, so, like, so much conviction. I know. Without any, without any said absolutely simply, yeah, like, yeah. this is a cup of tea. Yes, it was, yeah. you know, <laughs> incredible. And then other questions like, do, have you ever changed any of the piece of music? And as that, that question got round to them, a look of total incomprehension on their face. Like, you know, just, they, they didn't understand the question, basically. And then, so that just really, really made me think a lot about what music was for. And the fact that to them, they have no concept of music as performance. Music is not performed. Music is something that every single member of the village would take part in. They would all be singing and dancing the same songs at the same time. And that music was created for the important occasions of life. So they would all sing and dance to celebrate births, deaths, marriages, harvest phases of the moon, important visitors coming, whatever. So really major recalibration. And what does it do? What is the function of music in all of those times? It brings people together. 
it connects people and unites people in the important moments and that is a healing force that's a vital social structure of keeping people together um, and bonding them fascinating uh, how long were you not paying for eight months yeah. uh, what was that experience like um, I mean, you said it was introspective but I'm looking for more okay I'll give you more okay. um, so it I saw 16 doctors in six different countries to try and deal with a relatively minor injury um, but one that I couldn't lift my left arm above above horizontal and and I just, you know, when I did it, I just sort of, sort of thought, ah, bother, you know, that'll, that'll be a bit oh, annoying. Bother. Yeah, I just thought that's going to hurt for a few days. And, oh, how funny. My next concert was The Protecting Veil. I had right. two performances of The Protecting Veil in the States with Justin Brown, who might well have been the conductor with Raphael. He, he recorded it with Raphael. Okay. it was William Brown. Okay. So, anyway, so I had to count. No, 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 I played those two concerts. That's right, in the States. I played those two concerts through extraordinary pain with a, what do they call it, that steroid injection, cortisone injection, on the day of the second concert. Oh my God. And my shoulder was in so much pain that at two points during the second performance, my, my arm literally fell off the fingerboard and I had to hoik up my arm. It, it, horrendous. And that was the moment at which I finally had to admit to myself, there's something big going on here. I need to cancel some concerts and look at this. So then I embarked on the round of 16 doctors in six different countries. And to cut a long story short, nobody could fix it. I couldn't play the cello. Nobody could fix it. I couldn't sleep at night because every time I turned, I was in agony on my shoulder. I got extremely grumpy. My family were sick of me. And it got to the point where I really thought, what am I going to do? I can't play the cello. I'm going to have to stop playing the cello. And I, I, I really got into a genuine pit of despair. Um, pretty much the only time in my life that's happened up to the point where I suddenly pulled myself up one morning and said um, I've got to sort this out uh, I'm a lucky man my wife earns money I don't need to earn right now my kids are all healthy and happy we have a beautiful house I, I, just, did a, I just had been presenting a, a television programme for BBC2 called Classical Star I thought maybe I'll do more TV I'll get into radio I can arrange I can do workshops everything's fine and I really I had a major epiphany Looking back on it, I think it was just a huge identity crisis. I've been a cellist since the age of seven. Um, if I'm not a cellist, who am I? Uh, it's interesting that you say that because I interviewed some uh, two pianists in their 70s, brothers, oh, who wow. uh, did some piano duos. Uh, and they talked about how at some point in their career, quite early on, after they'd finished at Juilliard, um, they realised that they had gone so far down the line that there was just nothing else that they could do and they had to carry on. I understand, uh, and I, yeah. And you're nodding in a way that says that that's actually quite common. Well, and I hadn't really considered yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, the, the question of identity is very deep because, you know, I've sat with the cello most days of my life for the last 47 years. Um, and it, it just, it's a part of my body, it's a part of my whole existence. And then if that's taken away, as it was then, it was a it was a real long long dark night of the soul. I mean, for real. But when I had that epiphany moment, and I just thought, I have no choice. I've got to get my life together. I was genuinely happy. I'd hit a low, and I came and I thought, okay, I'm going to just do the best I can. And that day, I had a brainwave, and I think this, this I often 
tell to people because I really learned something about the nature of processes that we go through is that when you really let go of things there's a lot of space for other stuff to come in and I don't know whether it was a few hours or the next day or what it was but I just thought oh Wimbledon Wimbledon got to know more about shoulders than anyone on the planet I blagged my way into Wimbledon's health suite a few days later where their top shoulder surgeon said you need to go to Cardiff, you need to see Joanne Elfins Elfinston, who is a physio with whom this chap was sitting on the Olympic Physio Committee at the time. And I went to see Jo, and she is the only reason that I still play the cello. She wow. picks me up. And I still wow. go and see her three or four times a year. What a cracking story. Amazing. Do you like tennis? I quite like tennis, yeah. Oh, okay. Not as much as playing the cello. No, no, I, 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 yeah, no. Um, but yeah, no, it's a lovely story because it, it, it literally is that simple. Without Joe, I wouldn't be playing the cello. And you've been playing now for how long? Um, I mean, that was 12 years ago. Oh, okay, um, huge, huge journey. I mean, I had to relearn the cello. When I, when I went into her office, about the first thing she said was, I've been looking at your clips on YouTube. I can see what you're doing wrong. Um, whatever the emotional reasons are for you sitting and playing in that way, you're going to have to sort those out as well before you can feel so the um, She saw that I was nervous when I played. And my nervousness made me put my head forward. It made me oh, clench so up my left. So yeah. All of this was yeah. tennis across yeah. the shoulders. So wow. what, what she did that none of the other 16 therapists and doctors I saw did, she looked at me from the point of view of both someone who had had a skiing accident and someone who'd been playing the cello slightly wrongly for 35 years. That was the only thing she oh, yeah, did she that all the others didn't. She specialised in sports. She was, a, she was a musician and oh, okay. loves music. She'd been working with students at the Royal Welsh Academy as well. Okay. So she so understands music and performance, yeah. But that was, the, and she's also extremely bright and she just knew that, you know, the, the causes for this are complex, therefore the solutions are going to have to be complex as well. And we'll, you know, so I, I had to deal with stage nerves, um, which is something that many, many performers experience but I had to deal with it as a matter of my cellistic survival and I have done. Um, was there any, when you were training um, was there any attention given to, to I, I don't mean in terms of you specifically mm. but generally that idea of bringing uh, a, a physical medical um, zero Really? Zero attention. Now there is a little bit more. Right. Um, did you regret? Did, not regret? Were you annoyed about that when you, when you discovered what it was? I've actually never it? been annoyed about it. No. It all. No, I've, I've not been annoyed about it. I, I would get more annoyed about the fact that today it's still so slow. Um, that, that really, I mean, one, one of Joe's basic premises is that musicians need to really start looking at themselves as athletes. Yes. Um, and, you know, you, you don't practice six hours without a break. You don't practice seven days a week. You know, talk to Roger Federer and say, you know, do you play tennis seven days a week? He'd laugh at you. Yes. So, and what we're doing is an enormous amount of repetitive action. So it, it's... It's both art and athletics, and musicians need to change that frame of mind to understand that. What would you have changed uh, looking back over your training period? I realise that musicians are always trained. Yeah. But, you know, what would you have changed? Well, I mean, the real answer to that, John, is absolutely nothing. Um, because I'm, I'm so... so you still would have gone skiing. I'm so, I would. I'm yeah. so happy with where I've got to in my life, and I understand that that's a very very complex set of circumstances that have brought me here to this table now so absolutely nothing is the answer however 
if I was in charge of training other people, I would do things very differently from my own training. What would you do? Um, I would... I would make sure, first of all, that thing that uh, to change the mindset to to make students understand that they are athletes as well as musicians, and to really think about the body. I one of the things. Oh gosh, we're really going off on tangents here. Great. One of the things that Joe said at the very beginning of my work with her, she said that you have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is my uh, in quotation marks disability. Right. Um, it's a. I think it's an imbalance of collagen. Um, in, in the soft tissues in the body is hypermobility. I'm like an India rubber man. Um, and I would say to anyone out there with hypermobility, don't play the cello. Right. It it's makes it now, extremely it? difficult. Right. Because I'm just so bendy and wobbly and double jointed and things like that. Um, there's, there's a point in the protecting veil actually where my double jointedness makes it so hard to play that passage because it's a bit like having a break in the voice. You know, you can go up and then there's a, a break before you go into falsetto. I go up the fingerboard to a certain point where my wrist clicks and I have to get over a lump. Um, the only way I can... Whilst holding your fingers down. Whilst holding my fingers down to play. The only way I can get round that is to make my left hand so relaxed that it doesn't go over that bump. If I'm tight, there's a bump. And it's literally... It, it, do you hear it? If, if I'm tight, absolutely. There was a passage when I was recording the protecting veil on the first day. I just couldn't do it. I did it again and again and again. I got myself in a real state. Because um, so there is a, frust there's a frustration associated with that. There's a what? There's a frustration associated with oh, that. Oh, huge frustration. Because once I get into that lock, um, I can't get out of it. So what's happening is my muscles get tired. They can no longer brace my skeleton. Um, so that click of the bones occurs and what I had to do is I, I, I did the best I could with that passage on the first day of the recording uh, and I knew that it was just about okay uh, but not brilliant and I'm I, into selling your album by the way. I know no, no wait there's <laughs> a good ending to this I got back to the hotel that evening and I thought shall I leave it um, and you know, it, it's very difficult when you're in front of a whole orchestra, the red light's on, yes. you're struggling with the passage technically, you're wondering what the orchestra's thinking. You know, I got myself in a bit of a state, but I, I just about got it okay. And then I went back to the hotel that evening and I said, I have a choice. And I was directing as well, there was no conductor to hide behind. I have a choice, I can either let it go, you know, life's not perfect, it's okay, or else I can go back tomorrow and I can try it again. If I try it again, one of two things can happen. Either it'll get better, I'll be extremely happy, or the same thing will happen again, which will feel like it's even worse and I'll feel really bad. And luckily the former right. happened. Right. Okay. <laughs> so you can buy the record. Yes. But, yes. but it, was a, it was a difficult process, but I just know, you know, it's because there are certain things my body doesn't do. Um, and I just had, I have to absolutely force myself with the power of will to relax. And I have to train these muscles to relax, um, and then and then there isn't a bump in the in the double clickiness of the joints, and it's smooth, and I can play. Did you know that before the skiing? No, not at all. So not, this is all. Uh, this is, I, I've, so what I've had to do, um, Ehlers Danlos. One of the things about Ehlers Danlos syndrome is that it impairs our proprioception. So our sense of where our body is in space is proprioception it's how string Can you say that again because I'm interested. so proprioception we were taught we have five senses at school we don't we have a lot more than five and one of them is proprioception which is how we know where our body is in space yep. um, and it, it's 
yeah, that's what it is. So when, as a cellist, when I go from a note low down to a note high up, it's my proprioception that helps me know where that note is. Um, knowing where things are in space. And the way proprioception works, I think I've got this right, is that every time any joint in the body moves, um, a message is sent to the brain saying, I've moved this distance to over there. So we constantly get signals from every joint. But for those of us with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, that message system is impaired. And this explains something that always fascinated me. Which is, why is it that, and I've noticed this for years and years and years, I can do very difficult shifts right up and down the cello to, from top to bottom, almost impeccably. I almost never make a mistake there. But very frequently, tiny shifts, such as 10-year-olds would be able to do in first position, I get them wrong. Why is that? When this whole thing about Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome came to light, I realized it's because I never practice an easy shift because I know it's easy. I know that kids can do that. I see them do it all the time. But the really big shifts, I do them over and over again. So what happens in the big shift is I am teaching my hand very slowly, like a child with a learning disability, how to do that big shift. And once, it, once it's learned, it's learned. It's like bike riding. But because I've never taught myself to do those easy shifts, so I then had to embark on a process, and I've done it with all the major pieces, Dvorak, Concerto, Elgar, Beethoven sonatas. I play shifts of a centimeter dozens and dozens of times to teach my body that proprioception, that message, until I just know that my body's got it. It's like you're having to go back to the beginning. Oh, I had to go back to the beginning completely. And it gets even more interesting because the way I know when I haven't done a shift, and it still happens to me a lot, is I detect a, a minute frisson of fear when I do that shift. I, I do a shift, it's like, oh, something cuts, like, oh, something was scary there. And I track that and I realize, okay, I've got to go back and I've got to teach my body how to do that shift. I do it slowly, slowly, slowly until I can maintain my listening concentration throughout that shift and then I know it's done. Once it's done, it's done. There are elements of neuro-linguistic neuro programming in that. Yes, yeah, exactly what it is. Especially yeah. the stuff around yeah, uh, yeah. spatial awareness. It's really interesting. When did, you, um, when did you start training? I started training at the age of seven. Um, and the, I, I, I heard the other day that the Royal Liverpool Phil is, has just done a whole sort of research campaign with its players about who's got hypermobility. Right. So it's starting to be something that is known that musicians, they need to deal with. Um, and, you know, so this is a very long way of answering your question. Yes. One of the things I would do to kids learning today is, to, so first of all, help kids figure out who does have hypermobility and then how they need to deal with it because it's not it's not insurmountable no. you can get around it but I went a really long way around I really it, it, it actually it actually provides a steer on the kind of tuition and practice that you need to yeah. adopt initially absolutely absolutely uh, so you started at seven then started at seven um, I was very lucky I grew up in Sheffield where we had fabulous provision from the local music service free cellos free lessons free music courses so orchestras music service oh the ruin through that is why I play the cello and is where I fell in love with music and fell in love with making music together absolutely no doubt then National Youth Orchestra at 14 Cheatham School of Music at 16 Guildhall at 18 Moscow Conservatoire at 22 dear god yeah dear god. that was the trajectory uh, so uh, MYO was what year 
1979. Okay. Uh, and I'd had, um, I mean, not a sob story at all, but I'd had a fairly miserable few years at a comprehensive in Sheffield. Um, I was, I, I had blonde curly hair. My voice didn't break till I was 16 and I played the cello. In a comprehensive in Sheffield in the 70s, very bad combination. I, I'd get beaten up for playing the cello. Um, yes. And so I so I I went to the NYO at fourteen, and suddenly there were lots of people like me. I mean, not with blonde curly no, hair, but, no. but it, and it really was quite amazing. It was a very very special moment in my life, and I can still remember. You know, played the first piece we played the Shostakovich Ninth Symphony. I can still remember some of the rehearsal letters in that piece. It just was seared into my soul. Uh, when was the moment in time when you, when you thought, or when you knew this is a career? Um, unfortunately, I don't remember it. But my mum says that after my third cello lesson, I came home and said, "I'm going to be professional. I want to be famous and have my own helicopter." Right. And the helicopter. Well, it's just a no. I don't. <laughs> right. I, mean, I still haven't. Park, qu- I haven't quite made it yet. I haven't just passed Jeremy Clarkson on the way here. Um, uh, no, I suppose really what I mean is, is that at what point did you, uh, during your training, did you think this is going to work? Oh, I. I, I mean, I think. I realise that you may have had the aspiration. It's a funny. When did the aspiration become the ambition. Um, it, from that moment, I don't remember a time when I didn't know that I was going to play the cello for the rest of my life. There, there, wasn't in, um, there just hasn't been a time in my memory. I just knew all along, that's what I'm going to do forever. When did it start working? Because there is a difference yes, between I see what you mean. wanting it yeah. and working at it, and then getting the work in. Well, I mean, it's been a very, very slow process, actually, I think is the answer to that question. Um, I, I've, I've had a very unusual career in that um, as a string soloist, which is what I now am, I've only really made it as a string soloist in the last 10-15 years. There is no other string soloist I know, dead or alive, who didn't make it as a teenager or in the early 20s. That's when you make it, because the accepted wisdom is, if you hadn't made it by then, you won't, because you can't improve your technique after that point. Um, but thanks to this skiing accident, Joe, the Alos Danilos syndrome, syndrome and all that, I actually really honed and created my technique in the last 15 years. Um, so it, it's been a very, very odd career. And in my 20s and 30s and early 40s, I was doing a lot of really way out projects. Um, projects with contemporary music, with electronics, with dancers, actors, comedians in the community. Uh, improvising, writing arrangements. I have this idea that, that at that point in time you were then you were then Peter Gregson. I mean, that's kind of how I see Peter Gregson. That's interesting. How I see Peter Gregson because he's always doing very distinctive things. Um, One of the reasons Peter Gregson is doing distinctive things is because he heard me do a concert of cello and electronics in Edinburgh when he was a kid. Of course. And then I sold him his cello about 20 years ago. Yeah, I wasn't suggesting that he was the first. No, no. (laughs) But um, so that that is where I started, yeah, doing that kind of thing. So where was the impetus for doing distinctive stuff? Was that that born out of need or is that. Do you you know what? It's, It's just what happened. It's kind of what I fell into. I mean, I, my first musical ambition 
aged 13 or so was to be a reggae cellist. Um, which, like the helicopter, still hasn't happened. Okay. I don't think it does happen. But I was very slow to to sort of become musically who I am today, and I never had specific ambitions. I mean, I didn't. I never had an ambition to be only a soloist, the, the sort of single track. I wanted to play concertos for sure, but I also wanted to work in schools. I wanted to play with jazz musicians and indie musicians. I, I just wanted to do everything, really. I wanted to do everything I so could possibly quite, do. So you were quite broad? Very broad. Always very broad, yeah. And as a teenager, I went to very few classical, con- classical concerts. I, I went to hear Motorhead and Hawkwind and, and Judas Priest and stuff like that. <laughs> I hate it when classical musicians go, oh, no, I'm really into Bowie as well. Oh, OK, well, <laughs> fine, whatever. Um, Unfortunately, it's true. Until um, I came to the Guild Hall and then I started, I got really into classical concerts then and went to two or three a week all those London years. It was very exciting. What do you think musicians need to do now in order to get noticed? In order? To get noticed. Well... Because it strikes me as a bit of a nightmare. I think it is a bit of a nightmare. And, and I often think to myself, well, thank God I started my career 30 years ago. Because yeah. now it's so, so hard. And, I mean, the other very, very different thing these days is the whole social media yeah. thing. I remember reading a, a, a little article, can't remember the name, with an actress a couple of years ago who said, she was being very honest, she said, I've just been chosen for a huge net, Netflix series and I know another actress who went for the same job and I genuinely believe she's she's a better actress and better for the part than me but I've got four million Twitter followers than her more followers and and that is the way it's going and you can understand it you know from a concert promoter's point of view okay I prefer musician A but he has no follower on social media but musician B will fill the hall if I don't fill halls I'll get the sack of course they're going to do it I, I understand it promoters have to fill halls concert halls have to be full everyone's in a very very difficult place these days but that does rather suggest that um that musicians have to have another story to tell on social media in addition to their core Maybe it's true. And I I don't know how people can do that. No, I don't. I don't. And it's, it's, it's frankly a bit scary, but I wonder if every generation faces that sort of feeling of, God, it must be hard for the young ones today starting out. But I think to answer your question, I think there are some universal things that must hold true for any artist in any generation at any time is and it's so cliched that you might possibly throw up but you've just got to be true to yourself um and being true to yourself means means really finding out who you are um and that's i really believe that's a universal life journey like really to discover who you are and if you can do that musically you will have a resonance as an artist that's hard to ignore but doesn't that take time Yes, it does take time. Because well, I see, so, see, I see some. Uh, it's it's taken me a long time. Uh, I see some artists whose name I am not going to say, uh, who have a considerable marketing machine behind them. T- tell they, me when we switch off. Yes, the yes, I'm ready. There are two, in fact. Right. Uh, a considerable marketing machine behind them, and they are 18, 19 years old. And I, and I look at them and think. I don't believe your story I know, because I know. because you're too young. 
and I know that's incredibly cynical yeah. and mean-spirited because it could be that that is their story, but it strikes me that it happens 19, without a doubt. So you see, you do yeah, see, that. absolutely, it okay. absolutely happens, and I think those. Does that um, it, well, it saddens me for the musicians because I think they're being surrounded by the wrong people, um, and, and I think uh, it's terribly difficult that we can't name names because the conversation would be so much more interesting if we could. But I think that there are. Um, I mean, something that comes to mind is oh god, I think it was Marta Argerich who did the Chopin competition, won it, and then took several years off yes. to work. Yes. Natalie Klein did a very similar yes, thing yes, after Natalie did. won yep. the Young Musician. And these are brave and fabulous decisions which make pe better people and better artists. That's kind of what I expect as a hunter. Yeah. So if, if, right. someone, yeah. if someone wins a competition, yeah. actually that yeah. isn't the end of the process. Yeah. It's just the beginning of the process. Absolutely. So Absolutely. And then come back when you're you know, like a fine wine. Yeah. But I, I very much doubt, I mean, Natalie's a, a dear friend and I respect her hugely, but I doubt if Natalie had friends, family and colleagues and teachers around her saying, okay, you've got to take all the gigs and play yeah, them as fast yeah. as possible. And she said, no, I want to go and study. She probably had the right support around her that, that um, echoed what she herself believed. Um, and there, you know, there might even be people who say, oh, I want to get out and get on the concert circuit, but family, friends and teachers prevail with a bit more wise advice. But there are probably also family, friends and teachers out there who give the wrong advice. And that just happens. A, you know, it's a big world. There are all sorts of things out there. When it's off, I'll say the name. <laughs> um, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about was the Britain thing. Ah, yeah, that was, that was fun. <laughs> I loved that. Uh, and the reason for asking about that was that because it, it seemed ridiculously epic and uh, I didn't go to any of them, I'm terribly sorry. Right, uh, you had a hundred to choose from, John. Yeah, yeah, I didn't, yeah. <laughs> but they were dotted all around the country. Why, why did you, aside from the fact that it was Britain's anniversary, or Britain's centenary rather, why did you do that? Because it seemed like a lot of work. It was an enormous amount of work. Um, I, I did it for a very simple reason. Uh, Britain was one of the greatest composers for cello of the 20th century. Connection to Rostropovich, Russia. I studied with Rostropovich's greatest teaching pupil and all that kind of thing. I thought, okay, I want to do something for the Britain year. Uh, it's a centenary. Okay, why don't I do 100 events? It was that simple. I know, absolutely ridiculous. Um, and I think from memory... Sorry? Did anybody stop you? No, nobody stopped Right. <laughs> Great I think from memory it was 65 concerts and 35 educational events. I travelled 17,000 miles, the length and breadth of the UK, from Cornwall to the Shetland Isles and everywhere in between. In one year. In one year. And I had an absolutely fantastic time. Oh. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Um, I love the variety. I mean, I said earlier how you know I wanted to do everything, and I, I've always had a, a huge appetite um, for experience musically. And that year, uh, I played pretty much the same program 65 times, which I love um, because it just got deeper and deeper throughout the year. But you know, I played one performance in the Wigmore Hall. I played a performance in a cave in Derbyshire. I played a performance in a lighthouse, which I sold out twice, all 14 seats. It was just such fun, all that variety. And I met school kids. I worked with prisoners in a Glasgow prison. And just I, I 
took them Benjamin Britten's music and they loved it. Did you pick the venues? I picked the venues, yeah, pretty much all of it. I mean, my manager helped as well, and she was very useful in that respect. But I really steered that project because I, I loved it so much. And I, I look back on it with huge fondness. If I, you know, if I could, if I could engineer another pro project like that for the future, I would. But it, it was a genuinely spontaneous idea and a good one that just came along, and you can't manufacture them, really. I ask because... Um that was the thing that I especially wanted to ask you about when uh, the people from the PR company said, would you like to speak to Matthew? Oh, so right. they emailed me and said, oh, would really? you like to speak to Matthew about protecting Vail? Yeah. yeah, but, but actually I want to speak to And that makes me think that uh, there is something in the fact that the reason I know you or know of you mm. is because of that project. Oh, I don't know you because of BBC Two. Uh, oh, interesting, and I yeah. didn't know any other stuff about you so it's because of that oh that's really nice to hear uh, yeah. and, and that's why I was asking about uh, musicians today because it strikes me that you had to come up with something right. yeah. distinctive that cuts through yeah, yeah. Well, the usual it, concert it, it was a lucky strike I mean it genuinely was oh it's a centenary watch show. oh I don't yeah. do a hundred events but do um, you recognise how did you recognise after it how that contributed to your I'm sorry, Extraordinary, I know. I mean, it's been literally all, all around the world. I go to people and they go, "Oh, we heard about that Britain project." Yeah. I'm like, wow, how extraordinary! But and did I you think, know about that? did you realise that at the time? I didn't know. No, I didn't realise that at the time at all. And I still don't really know the mechanism whereby it happened. Except, I guess, it's just a very, I suppose, it's a very simple idea, and it's one that you remember. Yes. But but I think the fact that from my point of view it wasn't manufactured, it was it was a genuine thing, underlines my point that that when you know and it was very me. It was very over the top, it was very creative, it was a bit zany, you know, it's it you know, lighthouses and caves and stuff like that. It wasn't about all being glitzy and fancy concert halls and, and for me all the education stuff has always been totally genuine. I just adore teaching. It's just very deep in there. I get the impression that perhaps you prefer that over a console. I wouldn't say I prefer it. I say what I what I prefer is the mixture. That's what I really love. I, I would hate to only teach, but I love doing both of things, and and preferably finding ways to bring them together. So to, to spend a morning in a school and then bring all the kids along to the Wigmore, though, those are the things that excite me. You do have an enormous amount of energy, don't you? I mean, you yeah, seem ridiculous. Very, very enthusiastic yeah. about most yeah. things. Yeah, it's Do you ever get tired and grumpy? You don't, do you? It's, it's disappointingly rare, I'm afraid. <laughs> so you don't get cynical or, or twisted and bitter? I, um, I don't really do cynicism, but no, that's not true. <laughs> when, if, if I, when I get really overtired, I'm totally everything. Cynical, grumpy, the whole lot. But I know it's because I'm overtired and I get myself a good sleep and I'm back on track. And it happens a few times a year. But it's not. You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, available on Spotify, iTunes and Audio Boom. To get in touch, tweet at Thoroughly Good, post a message on the Thoroughly Good Facebook page or email john.jacob at thoroughlygood.me.